We'll be in Hebrews chapter 8, so if you'll find your way there. We're beginning a new chapter, and uh, it's a little bit of a different approach to really the same major themes we've been seeing so far. It's still centered around the priestly work of Jesus, but it sort of kind of helps us to kind of look at it through a different, different lens as the author is doing here. And one of the things we have to kind of routinely do as we're making our way through the book of Hebrews is remind ourselves why it's being written. Ultimately, it's being written to a group of Jewish converts to Christianity who are being persuaded or being tempted to turn back to Judaism because things are rather difficult, and ultimately because they lack assurance. And so again, we have to kind of ask ourselves those same probing questions that are oftentimes asked of the audience so we can kind of get a, a picture of what's going on here. And really, that's one of the things that the book is concerned with is the nature of assurance and ultimately how we can have assurance in Jesus's superior ministry. Oftentimes we struggle with assurance. It's not a I have it or I don't have it kind of thing. There are times in life where it grows and it weakens. And so that's ultimately what we'll be looking at here today. And we have to consider this as we enter into the chapter. Where do you look to whenever you need hope whenever you're in the midst of despair? Where do you turn when you're looking for encouragement and you're oftentimes discouraged? Do you look to better circumstances? Do you think, well, you know, things are going to get better. If I can just pay the next bill, if I could just make the next car payment, or if I could just get the kids to school or whatever. Hebrews is telling us to the Christian that there is nowhere that you can look for for hope You can't look for your circumstances. You can't just look for things to be getting better. You have to look somewhere else. And true hope is only found in the exalted ministry of Jesus Christ. I understand that in the midst of life circumstances, we tend to really struggle to believe that, or at least to put that belief into practice nonetheless. To really put into practice the reality that we have an advocate with the Father. 1 John 2, 1-2 reminds us of this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He is the true priest, the true mediator, and He is in heaven ministering on our behalf. And friends, He is more than enough. And that's what we want to see in our passage here this morning. But before I do that, I have to remind you of a very important genre tool that is used in the book of Hebrews. You know what genre is, right? Narrative, poetry, you know, didactic literature. It's like teaching. There's imperatives, places where you're challenged and called to self-examine and change. You remember typology, don't you? It's the study of types and their antitypes, their fulfillment. A type is an event, a series of circumstances, an office, a person, a place, an aspect of an individual or the nation which finds a parallel and a fulfillment in the life of the incarnate Lord. In fact, you could argue that even the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, even David... You know, we don't get a complete cover-to-cover biography of all of these men. We get important history, facts about their lives, but 
it's not exhaustive. It's selective. And it's selective because it gives us a picture. It serves to theologically foreshadow the life of Jesus and to prophetically find culmination in him. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that every word written about each of these figures is hiding some kind of little meaning about Jesus. It's not always that minute. But when you look at their lives, at the main players in the Old Testament, we see so many connections to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And when you come to Hebrews, you can't escape that tremendous genre of typology that is employed throughout the book by the author. In Hebrews chapter 3, we saw that Moses was intended in an imperfect, shadowy way to anticipate the person and position of Jesus Christ and the position that he would occupy ultimately over his people. In chapter 4, we saw the Sabbath rest. It was shown to be an imperfect, shadowy illustration of the ultimate rest found in Jesus. Also, we saw the people of God led by Joshua into the promised land foreshadow, foreshadows heaven itself, and one day we'll be taken there by Jesus. We've seen the character of Melchizedek beginning in chapter 5, 6, and mainly in chapter 7, which we looked at last Lord's Day, a person in whom we see the perfect coalescence of the kingly and priestly offices merging into one individual to point to the ultimate kingly priest. Then we saw that all the Levitical vestments, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, that they were woefully inadequate. They never brought a single person to God. They were types, shadows, pictures pointing to the reality to come. Their significance was never in themselves. Their significance was only in the thing or person they typified. What they picture in a dim way, he actualized. There we saw in chapter 7, he was a consummate priest, or better, a better priesthood. And today in chapter 8, we're going to kind of uh, venture into looking at the next major argument, how he is a minister of a better covenant. He's a better minister, and he ministers a better covenant. Throughout the rest of the book, we're going to see that he's a better sanctuary, a better temple, a better sacrifice. In chapter 10, we'll see he's a better offering. And, and again, there are, better, there are better things that he brings. And ultimately, there are grave consequences for rejecting such a perfect priest, sacrifice, temple, covenant head. And there, again, there's tremendous repetition throughout these chapters because all the themes are so interrelated now, it may seem like more of the same, but the incomplete preparatory types are shown ultimately to be insignificant in comparison to their superior antitype. In chapter 8, we see Jesus administers a better covenant. He is a priest of a better ministry. So today, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus is a superior minister because of three observations. So we're going to make three observations that demonstrate that Jesus is a superior minister, we're going to see his posture, his station, and his arena. So those three things, his posture, his station, and his arena. Let me read it. Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to look at the first five verses 
verses 1 to 5. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would, be a, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God, When he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. First, let's take a look at our superior minister's posture. You look at the beginning of the verse there, the beginning of verse 1, and you see the phrase, now the main point. Now, English doesn't always carry this over for us in verse 1. The main point is not merely a summary of all that's been said. That's not what it's about. It's not merely a summary of just the ministry of Jesus. You may think that, but that's not what it is. The main point, and what has been said is this, is not merely a summary, but it is the apex, the tip, the peak, the finishing nail, the summit. John Owen said, this is the crowning affirmation. This is speaking to the exaltation of his office as the kingly high priest. He is the heavenly priest king. What Melchizedek was a type of, what he pointed forward to, and what the Levitical priests were a type of, and what even David pointed to, he is in substance. This high priest was the true high priest, a true minister that they were all just types and shadows of. And when I say the word true, I do not mean that the other priests were false. I mean that they were types and he is the substance. Think of Jesus' language in the Gospel of John where he says, I am the true vine, right? Well, Israel was the vine of God in the Old Testament. Psalm 80 is all about that. But Jesus is the true vine. He is what Israel pointed forward to. Now, that's not to say that Israel isn't real or insignificant. Or when Jesus says, I am the true bread from heaven, he is not saying the bread from heaven, Ezekiel or Exodus 16.4, that God gave Israel in the wilderness is fake bread. He gave them that bread for the time of their need to keep them alive in the wilderness. But that bread was pointing forward to him. He is the true bread who would feed them forever, giving them eternal life. So likewise, the Old Testament priests sent by God for a time, but they were types and shadows pointing forward to him. He is the true high priest, and his office has been exalted. And it's precisely this king high priest who sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and we're given some tremendous truths about him in these opening phrases. And I want to elaborate on that. First, we're going to see his location, but let's look at his posture, okay? There's location and posture. The posture is tremendously telling. And sometimes we have to stop and pause and think about it. I know I've told you this before, 
I want to stop and say it again today. The Levitical priests never sat down. You know, there was all this furniture inside the temple for the priests to do their work. All these instruments. We have it recorded for us in marvelous detail in the Old Testament, don't we? And one thing is glaringly absent. There are no seats. There's nowhere to sit. There's no couch. There's no seat. There's not even a counter to lean on. No bench. No stall. Not even a stool. Hebrews 10, 11. Every high priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. Notice that? He stands daily. Day after day, he stands. Inside the sanctuary, while he was at work, you know, he's on the clock, he, he couldn't sit. And you know why. Because by being unable to sit, we get a picture that his work was never complete. It was never finished. It was never done. I mean, think of the futility of that. Day after day, never allowed to sit. Just a, a constant reminder that what he was doing accomplished nothing. Futility, ineffective, vanity, nothing was accomplished by them in reality. And what does the author of Hebrews chapter 8 tell us about the posture of our Lord at the right hand of the Father? He is seated. And why is he seated? Well, because his atoning work was done once for all time. After he cried aloud from the, the cross, it is finished. In triumph, he sat down. It shows us its permanent eff efficacy. He does what no one else, no other priest was ever allowed to do. He sat but furthermore, he's not just a priest. Because according to the order of Melchizedek, we also have to consider his seated position as king. He is a king priest. It is a point that's established by the Melchizedekian order to be seated at the right hand speaks of his exaltation as king, as lord. This is language that speaks of his royal power. His sovereign rule and authority. It, it is the language from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yes, Jesus, Jesus was a humiliated high priest during his earthly ministry. He was a man who suffered in ministry, who was mistreated in ministry. If you've ever had a bad ministry experience, you can relate to this. You try to share the gospel with someone, you got mocked, you got spit at, maybe mistreated. Well, friends, he had that to the nth degree. And he was crucified for our sins as a ministry, a service to poor, helpless sinners like us. That was his service of humiliation. But now he has been raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and he is exalted he is seated at the right hand of God. He is now serving in his exalted office. He is the high priest who is also sovereign king and lord of all power and authority. Hebrews 1.3, after making purification of sins, he sat down. 
Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. After his work was done, it was complete, he sat down. Let's look at a little bit more detail here. Look at, look at verse 3 in our text. See, see, there's a contrast here with his work. There's a contrast of quantity, frequency. All that is contrasted here. Let's look at it. Verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Theirs is described with the plural. Gifts and sacrifices. Plural gifts, plural sacrifices, uh, a multiplicity of gifts and sacrifices. There's an unending stream of blood from the multitudes of animals that were butchered in the daily and yearly sacrifices in Israel. It rolls through the pages of Israel's history. It's gushing from the arteries of countless animals as a picture that it never ended. They brought sacrifices and offerings over and over again because their sacrifice was just a type. They could never remit sin. They could only offer you the Christ who could remit sin. The atoning work of Jesus was limited to a one-time thing. You may be wondering, well, where do you get that from here in the text? Well, we see it in the indefinite pronoun something. It's singular. He has a one thing to offer. One sacrificial offering contrasted with the many gifts and many sacrifices. Also notice the frequency. Look at at this as well. At the beginning of verse 3, it says, For every high priest is appointed to offer. Then look where it says here later. It says, So it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Do you see that? To offer? It seems the same. It sounds the same. But once again, the original text is helpful here for us. The first use of to offer speaks of the old covenant priests. It's in the present infinitive, meaning it's stressing ongoing action. It's in the present tense. It's today and today, right now and right now, and there's no escaping the present tense right here. It goes on and on and on. That's what's stressed in the first use. The old covenant priests had to continually offer again, 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 unending. The second use of the phrase to offer, tied to the new covenant head, Jesus Christ, it's in a different construction. It's not the present infinitive, but it is in the aorist, stressing snapshot action, something that took place, definite event, one-time thing. See how crystal clear the contrast is? See the finality that's stressed in just those two things. So the sitting down is a reference to Christ's work of atonement being complete. He has finished his atoning work, a one-time work, and he now rules and reigns. And now from his eternal throne, he continues his ministry of mediation for us. Ephesians 5, 2 Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. 
your spiritual well-being as a Christian needs a daily reminder of this wonderful truth. The sacrifice of Jesus for sinners has thoroughly satisfied God. And when you realize that, when you really get a picture of that, you start to realize how repulsive it is to hint at, to contemplate, or to even propagate any kind of idea that your work could please God, your trying, your effort could please God. He did it through and through. You know, God doesn't begrudgingly let us into heaven. It has been earned. It has been merited by the life and death of His Son. And so He's happy to receive you. It's, it's the epitome of foolishness to seek forgiveness for sins, love from God, and your own efforts. Your morality, your faith, your love, your charity, fill in the blank. Nothing in you can satisfy like the death of His Son. It reminds me of that wonderful hymn that we sing so often, Rock of Ages. It reads this, Not the labor of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Fact two. We see his posture. He's seated on account of that one-time efficient sacrifice as a king priest. And now let's look at his unique station. His unique station. Look at where he is seated. We're going to look again at verses 1 and 2. Let me read it for you. At the end of verse 1, it says, At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. We have two stations here to account for regarding our covenant minister. We have his exalted state in heaven, and we have his incarnate state, his his state of humiliation here on earth. Uh, The word pitched here is really important. In some translations, it's fixed. It is a word that is used for the establishment, the erection of a building, of a tabernacle. The fixing of stakes or pillars with fastening of cords. It's the principal means of setting up the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So Jesus' state of humiliation, we have the fact that he, according to his humanity, which was prepared by God, Psalm 40, verse 6, quoted in Hebrews 10, 5, says, a body thou hast prepared for me. In that first station, we looked at how perfect he was even last week. Now for the station we want to look at today, we want to pay more attention to his station today. Look at the phrase, majesty in heaven. That's the name of God that's used in chapter 1. If you remember that, uh, this is a way of stressing the transcendent, lofty, exalted station of God himself. That which separates him infinitely far and above everything in creation. It's what sets him apart. The mention of his right hand is also telling 
of his position or his station of, of supreme authority, honor, and power. You can probably imagine how impressive it would be to be a priest in the Old Testament days, right? I mean, especially the high priest. I mean, think about how they, the place they fit in society. Uh, you know, people would probably um, talk about them all the time. Even today we do that. You know, we name drop uh, a senator, a politician, a celebrity. Uh, Christians even have a bad habit of doing that with pastors even. But imagine the one man who is to go uh, into all the work for Israel to make them right with God. You know, only he got to wear the holy garments, the ephod, the breastplate. He had tremendous responsibility. I mean, the whole nation's plights and forgiveness rested on his ability to atone and intercede. One day out of the year, for a few moments, this guy got to stand in the very presence of God. He actually got to be in the presence of God. He had the respect, the honor, the dignity of all the people, and rightly so. But guess what? That don't have anything on our high priest. It's got nothing on him. It'd be like taking a freshly struck match from a matchstick and holding it up against the blinding brilliance of the sun. We have six references in Hebrews to Jesus being referred to as the one who is enthroned at the right hand of God. He's a kingly priest. He has the dignity of a king, and he's seated on a king's throne in heaven. Again, since we don't live in ancient society, we don't always get the impact of what this is telling us. But back in the day, the guy who sat at the right hand of the ruler, uh, he was the one who acted on behalf of the ruler. He acts in the name of the ruler. He possesses the authority and power, power of the ruler. In other words, all the might and sovereign authority, all the majesty of God is in Jesus Christ. He is the reigning Lord. Following his resurrection, Jesus says, Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Paul says this too, Ephesians 1, 20 to 22. With the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he will put all things in subjection under his feet and give him his head over all things. When we see this, it becomes crystal clear that it doesn't pertain to the Levitical types. It is evident that, again, it pertains to an individual of a higher caliber. And yet, we come to a startling realization that in verse 2, what does it tell us about our king priest? What does it say he is doing? It says he's ministering in the sanctuary. He serves in the sanctuary? How does a a noble, dignified, lifted above the heavens, king priest, the only one ever qualified to fulfill the the munis triplex, the threefold offices of Israel, prophet, king, and priest, in one person, how does he serve? That should be mind-shattering to us. He ministers? When was the last time you saw a king minister? Serving. I mean, kings have servants to do the serving. They don't serve. It's ludicrous. 
but it tells us he is a minister. He is a servant. Though Jesus has been exalted and glorified, there he continues to minister, to serve as the king priest on our behalf, on behalf of the church. In the height of his glory, he is still ministering for you. Jesus ministers for us in the true, true tabernacle, the true sanctuary. Uh, we can look at each of these. I mean, he's ministering in the true sanctuary, the true holy place. When the high priest slaughtered the sacrifice, he carried the blood into the holy of holies to make propitiation for the sins of the people because they needed it to be in the presence of God. Christ offers up himself, and then he carries that sacrifice into the true presence of God. And what did Jesus offer? Hebrews 7, 27, he offered up himself. And at the self-same time that he made the offering here on earth, by his omnipresent spirit, he is present in heaven. We saw that last week. And I said it last time again, he made the ultimate sacrifice of himself, of his humanity on the altar of his deity. This work was a ministry. And even now in that exalted station, he ministers. That's easy for us to see during Jesus' state of humiliation. The son's earthly pilgrimage, right? We see that in Mark 10, 45. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. In John 13, 3 to 5, Jesus serves his disciples by washing their feet. We see examples after examples of service, of graciousness, and we connect them rightly in many times to his earthly ministry. But friends, our text is telling us something so much more profound than that. He serves us even now. It's not just in humiliation that he serves, but even in his state of exaltation as an expression of divine love, he sympathizes with us now. In heaven, in perfect bliss, we are on his heart, his mind, his prayers of intercession. And friends, this wonderful ministry doesn't contradict his royal dignity even in the slightest. It's the way God has always been. Just like in the garden, Adam and Eve, they sinned. You know, they didn't seek out God and ask for forgiveness, did they? They didn't come to their own realization and come to God and say, we really messed things up. We better go make things right with him. We don't see anything like that whatsoever. What do we see in the book of Hosea? We see Gomer. She cheats numerous times on Hosea. She doesn't realize, even when she's sold into prostitution, that she better run and make things right with her husband to plead for forgiveness and reconciliation. We don't see that either. And we're reminded of this in the pages of the New Testament time and time again. Romans 5, 8. You probably have it memorized. But God demonstrated his own love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, it's sort of preposterous to even think that the one who receives worship unceasing from all the inhabitants of heaven Psalm 148, verse 2, praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his hosts. Psalm 103, 20, bless the Lord, his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Verse 21, bless the Lord, all you his hosts, who serve him, doing his will. His current state of intercession 
is key. This king, this priest, always lives to make intercession for us. That is what, what the one who upholds the entire universe and receives unceasing praise is doing. He lives to make intercession for us. Right now, Hebrews 7.25 tells us that. Always a constant, unbroken stream of perfect fellowship of man dwelling with God. See, with that, you're never alone. You're never forsaken. You're never forgotten. And you're never neglected. As a man, he is exalted to the supreme seat, the station of dignity and authority, seated at the right hand. And in that place, he ministers. Now three, we've seen the superiority of his ministry because of his posture. He sits, it's complete, it's perfect. We saw his station of ministry where he serves. Now third, let's look at the arena in which he serves. In the sanctuary, the true tabernacle. Let me read verses four and five. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which is shown to you on the mountain. What does he mean by the true tabernacle? True here in the text, again, is not contrasted with that which is false. It's not saying that there's a true tabernacle in heaven, but the one that was here on earth is false. It refers to the authentic as opposed to the foreshadowing, murky replica, the miniature of the reality. The type on earth, the tabernacle in Israel, only dimly prefigured the weightiness of the truth. So think about that. Jesus serves in the authentic tabernacle. Not in a pop-up tent in the wilderness. This doesn't mean, again, that the Old Testament types were unimportant, okay? They weren't. They were a picture for a dying, dreary, desolate, wilderness-wandering, earthly pilgrimage people. It was the picture they needed to get them through the events of life. It gave them a taste of what was to come. It wasn't a bad taste. It wasn't an insignificant taste. It wasn't meaningless, it was just not as grand as the culmination found in Jesus. And why does that matter? Why does it matter to you here today that Jesus is serving in the authentic, genuine, real deal, holy of holies, and not in a temporary one? Because if it was not the case, we would all be doomed. For no man would have unbroken access to God. Now try to follow along with me with the reasoning on this, okay? If the the temple in Jerusalem is all that there is, if it is the only proper and acceptable way to get to God, if, if it's the exclusive and the correct way to get to God, then guess what? Christians are doomed because there is no room for Christ in the Levitical priesthood, the earthly laws, the laws of natural descent of his priestly office. Furthermore, where's that temple now? Where has it been since 70 AD? All men are doomed because if the only way to God is through an earthly temple, well, guess what? It was destroyed and it hasn't ever been rebuilt. Interesting. 
You notice in Jesus' life, he claimed to be God. He displayed his prophetic offices many times, predicting the future, foretelling what had to happen to him. With 100% accuracy, mind you, he also claimed to be a king, a king not of this world, but a king nonetheless. He received worship as king and as God. But you know what we don't see? We don't see him busting at the earthly temple on the day of atonement and telling the earthly priests, yo, I got this. The true priest has come. Why doesn't he do that? Well, because the earthly pitcher had earthly laws. And those earthly laws prohibited non-Levites from the high priestly office. If he were priest based on earthly laws and not based on heavenly laws, he would not be a priest at all. And he was not a Levite. He was not a priest according to earthly law. He was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, a priest by the oath of God, by the power of an indestructible life, a priest based on heavenly law. The apostle is telling us something here, that Jesus is a better priest who offers a better sacrifice, so it's only fitting that he does so in a better sanctuary to carry out that ministry. Not far removed from God, but in his very presence. And where is that? Where does God dwell? Our eternal priest who offered himself and then went into the Holy of Holies in heaven. The Holy of Holies, the place, the sanctuary in the temple and the tabernacle on earth, that one was a type. It was always pointing to being in the presence of God. That's all it was about. Hebrews 9.24 tells us, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He, he ascended into heaven. It's a bodily ascension. And again, what is he doing? He is ministering the benefits of all of his work. He is ensuring that every single benefit of his work is available and it's for you. He is a surety, a high priest. In his ministry right now in heaven, the true tabernacle set up by God. And what is that? Let me look at two things here. Verse 2 and then verse 5. I want to point something out. In verse 2, it says, The true tabernacle which God pitched, not man. And then verse 5, talking about the earthly one. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, that he doesn't make them according in any other way except the pattern which was shown to him. Really interesting texts there. This reality is new revelation at this point in progressive history, obviously. Now, where do we get it so explicit here? I mean, nowhere do we get it so explicit here. The terms copy and shadow, they're terms that reflect something, uh, that reflect something, that give you a picture They aren't the substance, but a reflection. And as a reflection, they resemble something far superior to themselves. Think about your shadow. It reflects from the shining of the sun an image of you, a copy of your silhouette on the ground below, right? You won't cast a shadow of something that doesn't resemble you at all. You can't cast the shadow of a plane. In the same way, you are much more important more valuable and full of dignity 
than the shadow that you project. So what's the true tabernacle? Where is the place where God dwells with men? Remember what the angel told Mary? You will bear a son and name him Emmanuel, God with us. The point I want to argue for you is this. The true tabernacle is not a building. It is the body of Christ. Verse 2. It's the one pitched by God, not by men. Again, the word true is not saying the Old Testament tabernacle is false. It is comparing the Old Testament tabernacle with the true tabernacle. It's comparing the better tabernacle. It's saying the Old Testament was a type. And that type pointed to the antitype, the fulfillment, the substance. And again, what is it a type of? The incarnate Lord. Again, I'm not talking about a building in heaven. Don't just picture another structure in heaven. That's not the point at all. Remember, the building is a type. The tabernacle is where God dwells. God dwells in the tabernacle. I mean, the greatest need of man and the greatest blessing they receive from God is for God to dwell with them. Tabernacle was a type of that. And this is what I'm arguing. It is in Jesus Christ that God dwells in, with man. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's Colossians 1.17. This is why he's referred to this way in John. John chapter 1, we read it this morning. John 1, 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It literally means tabernacled among us in John 1, 14. John 2, 19 to 22, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Revelation 21, verse 3 and 22. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. In verse 22, the eternal state, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The tabernacle in the Old Testament where God dwells with man was a type of Christ. The Old Covenant tabernacle pointed to him. He is the true tabernacle. He is the true dwelling of God with man. Those Old Testament priests, their sacrifices, and their tabernacle and temple were a type, a shadow. They pointed forward to something far, far greater. Moses was shown the pattern which was intended to point to the incarnate Christ. And Moses was given instructions on everything in the ways that those things typify him. You know Moses looked forward to Christ, right? Hebrews eleven twenty six, Considering the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking for the reward. When Christ comes in his incarnate work, he is making known the mystery of God's will, God's purpose, God's plan from before the foundations of the world. That triune pact before the foundation of the world regarding the Son, you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Then, 
In Revelation, God gives us types and shadows and the Old Testament that point to that reality. These types and shadows reveal the mystery of Christ in part. But then he came and the mystery of God's revelation was revealed in full. And what I am arguing is that Christ is our exalted priest who is ministering in the holy place in the true tabernacle for us in his humanity. There is what we need. The man, our man in heaven. So we are told there he rests. And that's where our assurance should rest. Not in the type, but in the substance. Not in the shadow, but in the reality. The shadow reflects something authentic and real. The value of the temple in Jerusalem or the tabernacle in the wilderness only rests in the reality it typifies. Again, Moses wasn't given artistic liberty to concoct for himself whatever way he thought was really hip and cool to worship God. He was given minute details. You read those in the pages of the Pentateuch, didn't you? You probably do that every now and then when you do those reading plans through the Bible and you die somewhere in Leviticus because you didn't make it through. It's when you encounter these things where you get page after page after page of details about this, right? You get the size, you get the shape, you get the furnishings, you get the material it was supposed to be made of, the kind of wood, the, the gold, the linens, all of it. Again, he didn't have creative liberty to change that. He didn't even have the authority to change the colors. Even those are determined by God. Moses was given a tremendous warning. Exodus 25, 40. See that you make them as a pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. The antitype is in reality. The archetype is already due to the pactum in the mind of God, even in Moses' day. It's not that the Jews just kind of made their religion up as kind of the liberal commentators would have unsuspecting seminary students believe. No, it's not that you know, God was up in heaven and he decided to kind of borrow a pattern for worship that he found in the temples of the surrounding pagan nations. No, it's not like God sees the earthly things and then makes a copy for himself in heaven. I mean, that's insanity. He's not like some gritty child who's like, oh, I like that. I think I'll make one for myself. The tabernacle on earth, the place where the unceasing, imperfect sacrifices offered by imperfect priests was always a murky, dim, rude expression of the real deal, the incarnate Lord. And that's mind-boggling, my friends. It's typical for us to think of Old Testament prophecy, New Testament's fulfillment. And that's a very helpful understanding of those dynamics. Old Testament promises made, New Testament promises kept. You know, Old Testament promises, prophecies, types, shadows, New Testament fulfillment, reality. But here's the amazing thing. The author of Hebrews is saying that the Old Testament priesthood was a copy of Christ, and so was the tabernacle. It was merely a copy. Now again, that's mind-boggling. It's a copy of Jesus. When you saw the Levitical priesthood, it was merely a copy of the one, the true, the real priesthood of Jesus Christ, who was to come. Their temple was a copy. Their sacrifices were copies. Everything was a copy, foreshadowing the one who would be a true priest, offering a true sacrifice in a true temple of his body, which he has since taken to heaven, and he ministers with it on our behalf. Have you ever held a photo of a loved one? I know in today's age, a lot of us use our phones, but have you ever looked at the photo 
of the loved one that you had. Maybe they've gone home to be with the Lord. Maybe they're friends of yours who live far away. Perhaps they're your children who have gone off and done something else or a spouse. Maybe you're away for a time. When you're separated, you, you go to that picture and it gives you those warm memories again, right? What our text is telling us is that your friends, your children, your real spouse is far better than the photo that you use to resemble them by. The author is saying, don't look to the copy for your hope. Don't look to the Old Testament priestly ritual for your hope. Look to Jesus. And that's a message for us all. In our discouragements, in our trials, don't look to anything but Jesus. Don't even look to a copy of Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to him for your hope. You've got a better priest, the real thing. And as the crowning affirmation of Jesus' priesthood, we see he didn't come to serve in the replica, but in the original, the true tabernacle. He is in heaven, in the Holy of Holies. He's in heaven now with his body, not a knockoff here on earth, and he's ministering right now. That's why he's superior to all other earthly priests, because they could never go with their bodies to heaven itself. He does so in a way no mere man ever could. You see how superior Jesus' ministry really is? It is an infinitely superior ministry to the old economy. Hebrews 7.22, remember? It says, so much the more also Jesus became the guarantor of a better covenant. We're going to be looking at that, that contrast throughout this chapter of old covenant, new covenant, resting ultimately in Jesus Christ. But for here today, we have to come to the realization that in every way, Christianity is superior to Judaism. You can't be saved as a Jew apart from Christ. And so, even for you here today, do not turn away from this Christ. Do not turn away from this one who is infinitely suited to meet your needs as a priest. This one who occupies a greater posture, a greater station, who ministers in a greater arena. Turning away from this priest can prove catastrophic. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, if you stand outside this covering, outside of this ministry of the ultimate priest, you stand in a woeful condition. For he sees you in all your putrid sin, dirtiness, filthiness inside and out. You know, you've never hidden a single thought from God. You've never fooled Him. You've never tricked Him into thinking you're actually good. All your guilt is ever present before His all-seeing omniscience. And so, you need this priest king. Whether you're 10 or 40 or 80 or 5 years old, it doesn't matter what age you are. Hear me, Jesus Christ is the minister you need. A minister with a perfect posture. He works in finality, in a perfect station. He's enthroned in heaven, ministering in the perfect arena. He's the God-man. He is where God is, in a perfect sanctuary, having offered his perfect sacrifice, performing, performing perfect intercession. Friends, come to this priest today. This passage of the book of Hebrews is all about where you look to for that hope. 
If you're just looking for happiness, if you're just looking for joy, if you're just looking for satisfaction, and you find it in anything but Jesus, you will never find true happiness. You will never experience true joy. You'll never have lasting satisfaction. You're going to thirst tomorrow. You're going to be hungry again. You want to never thirst? You want to hunger and thirst for righteousness? You want true hope? Abiding peace? You want hope that won't ever be pulled out from under your feet? Well, don't look to your circumstances. Look to a better minister. Look to that superior minister. He's the true priest in the true sanctuary. Friends, it is a great reminder to our hearts that our man's in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we thank you for reminding us that even if we know these things doctrinally, we don't always rest on them in practicality. There are so many times that we fret in our hearts, and instead of going straight to heaven, straight to our man in heaven and praying, we look for other solutions. We find condolences and the way things will probably work out in our lives. We pray that you would forgive us of the times we do that. Lord, correct us in the times that we are doing that and direct our thoughts and attention to heaven where we have a perfect minister who loves us in perfect holiness. We pray that you would help us have that even now. In the name of Christ, our King, we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.